think last time I was here, there was a, a COVID shield. So thank God that things uh, have, I guess, gotten a little better. Um, I'd like to thank the Menahelet and uh, the staff of this wonderful seminary for inviting me here. Uh, I did speak here that time, and I was very impressed by the quality of the girls, the fineness, and the. Uh, I told my daughters, you know, who are in high school, you know, how everyone took notes so nicely and were so respectful, so it made a very, very good impression on me. Uh, today's shir, uh, I'd like to dedicate L'zecha Nishmas Liel Dina Bas Ephraim, that uh, girl who was Nifteris in the car accident uh, two days ago. She happened to have been uh, my youngest daughter's best friend. Just to bring it a little closer to home, not they didn't go to the same high school. My daughter, my youngest daughter, is in tenth grade at Manhattan High School, and she went to Tag. But in elementary school, they went to a school in Queens called Nosmalka Academy, and they were really, really best friends. And my daughter is, you know, understandably, uh, not taking it very well, and uh, we have to be misspelled for. Her family, who are, you know, must be going through unimaginable uh, yisurim, and uh, and so I'd like to dedicate this shir l'zeich nishmasa. So today is Asar B'Teves, and uh, it's a uh, it's one of the the Tanesim on the calendar. It's a minor fast, as it's called, which means that there aren't as many. Uh, Chumrot, as there would be, on, of course, on a Kishabav, on a Yom Kippurim. But it's, a, it's, I would say it's the first in a series of joined fast days that have a lot to do with the Chorban Beis HaMikdash, which, of course, took place on Tisha B'Av. But this was the first in the series of tragic events that led to the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. So we're talking right now about the Bayes Rishon, the first... Beit HaMikdash. The, on this day in history, on Asar B'Tevet, there was a siege. Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babel, surrounded with his armies uh, Yerushalayim, our holy city. And for 18 long months, until uh, the next year, a year later, a year and a half later, on the 9th of Tammuz, there was just the state of being in, besieged, which means that the armies controlled the outskirts of the city, nothing went in or came out without the Romans, um, without, I'm sorry, without the Babylonians' permission. And then um, after, on the 9th of Tammuz was when they actually invaded, they broke the walls of Yerushalayim, they entered into the, uh, into the city, and then on Tisha B'Av, that was when the Beis HaMikdash was actually destroyed, the first Beis HaMikdash, and then, of course, the second Beis HaMikdash as well on that very same day. What I would like to take out from this event, even though it seems a little bit more abstract, perhaps, than the other, the destruction of the temple itself, what can we learn from when we are besieged, when a city is, is not able to control its own space. We're not able to go in. We're not able to go out. Think about if you were living in your Shalayim in the old city, uh, going back to that period of time. Think about how difficult life must be. 
you were always able to leave whenever you want, come in whenever you want, go shopping, uh, be able to have a family life, be able to have food, be able to... Uh, all of the luxuries, all the things that we're so used to having, that freedom of space, freedom of movement, and suddenly we find ourselves blockaded by an enemy force not allowing us to control anything about us. We're in a, in a self-contained uh, prison, in a way, and whatever we have, any supplies that we had in Yerushalayim proper, we had, and whatever we didn't have, whatever we needed, now we needed to come on to the, uh, to the graciousness, as it were, of the enemy to allow us to have firewood, to allow us to have food, to allow us to have fresh water or milk or whatever products that we needed, Suddenly, all of that um, was no longer ours. The things that we assumed to be ours were no longer ours, and now we needed to come on to the enemy uh, who was surrounding us. And of course, and then at a later stage, it stopped being just a siege. It actually became an invasion of our space. They came into our into our city, and they and they demolished things, and they terrorized us, and they created a lot of. Uh, a lot of havoc until, of course, the actual uh, Beis HaMiktish was destroyed and we were uh, sent into Galut. So a lesson that I think is very important to take uh, from today is that we have to try to understand how devastating it feels when other people are surrounding us, encroaching upon us, and invading into our, our precious space. Space is something that we don't really always think about because we assume that it's a given until it's not a given, until people actually come and, and take over our space and, and invade and, 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 and go beyond their boundaries. Our space, our zone, our area is considered to be a sacred area. There is a, an amazing Mishnah in Pirkei Avos that says that there were ten Nisim that took place every day in the Beis HaMikdash, every day in the Holy Temple. There were ten miracles. And one of those miracles were that Omdim Tzfufim Umishtachavim Rivachim, that they would stand and it would be packed. The Beis HaMikdash was very often a place that had many, many thousands of people in a very small area, not, not, a, not much bigger than this building, actually. It was very small, and yet there were people that were packed in, but the miracle was that as soon as they would bow down, there would be plenty of space. All of a sudden, miraculously, it, it defied physics, it defied you know, what we understand as space, but when you bow down, suddenly there was plenty of room, even though you were shoulder to shoulder with the person next to you a second before. What was the reason for that miracle? So if you look at one of the commentators on the Mishnah, the Bartanura, Ravadya Bartanura from Italy, he says something fascinating. He says that the reason that Hashem performed this miracle is because, and I'll quote him, when a person bowed down, what they're really doing is it's a time to confess. It's a time that they were able to, 
speak privately to Hashem and say, I did this Avera and I did that Avera and I'm coming to you for forgiveness. Now, when we're bowing down and if somebody's right next to me an inch away, they're going to hear what I have to say. And that is in violation of my right to privacy. I have the right to have privacy in my life. Nobody should be listening to when I am misvada, when I am confessing. And therefore, Hashem performed a special miracle every day in the Beit HaMikdash that I have the right to bow down and to confess, and nobody around me knows or can hear or, or has any notion whatsoever of what I have to say to God. It's, it's private. It's not anyone else's business. If somebody would try to listen in on what I'm saying to Hashem, that would be sort of what the Babylonians did. They were encroaching on our space and our territory. They were besieging us, and eventually they were invading us, and that is something that is, is exactly the opposite of what a Jew is supposed to do. We find by... By Bilam, Bilam praises the Jewish people, and he says, "Matovo o'alecha Yaakov, how beautiful are your tents, Yaakov, Klal Yisrael, Mishkanotecha Yisrael, how beautiful are your Mishkan." And Rashi famously says that what did he see that was so special about the encampment of the Jewish people that all of their tents, the openings, were all aligned in a way that you could come out of your front door and there would be not another front door on the other facing you to be able to look into what's going on in your tent. So every single tent was, was sort of arranged in a way that one tent was facing this way, one tent was facing that way, and that's a, that's a tremendous thing. That's something that a lot of people don't have. But Bilam saw that that was an amazing uh, novelty that the Jewish people almost invented, that we don't look into other people's property. We don't, we don't invade, even with our eyes, space. There's a lot of gemarot in, 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 in Shas that speak about something called hezek re'iyah. We know that I'm not allowed to damage you. I'm not allowed to go and take a hammer and start breaking down your wall or, or breaking a window of, of your car. That we know. But did you realize that there's also halachot about looking into somebody else's property. You're not allowed to look into somebody else's property. If you see somebody whose windows are open, you're not supposed to peek in and try to see what's going on in there. If you have permission to look in, that's fine. But if you don't, unless it's, let's say, Hanukkah, you know, and people, I guess, assume that if you're lighting inside of your living room, people assume that you're going to probably be looking in at the menorah. But in general, throughout the year, tonight you walk into the street and you, you know, you're walking down the block and you see a window shade open, it's not allowed for us to go and look into somebody else's property. That's something that's a very, very uh, grave violation of other people's uh, right to space and to privacy. I want to tell you over a story that happened um, to a friend of mine. Uh, when we were learning together in Israel, we were learning in yeshiva called Kol Torah, which is in, uh, it's in Bayit Vagan in Yerushalayim. And it's a yeshiva that... Uh, was not you might not know too many Americans that go there. I was in a very big minority. I, we, were, we were maybe 10, 20 chutznikim, people from outside of, uh, of Eretz Yisrael. There was some Americans, French, British, um, South Africans, and then 
There was, uh, and the rest of it was was Israelis, like real Israelis, like uh, you know maybe. Uh, we were outnumbered maybe 500 to 10 to 20. It was like you talk about the Hanukkah miracle of Rabbi Biad Matim. It was a very, we were very outnumbered. Um, and I had a good friend uh, in that yeshiva. He was from South Africa and he had a job that it was a zchut. It was a, it was a, a wonderful job to have. In fact, I, I inherited it after he left. I, I took it over that we were in the shiur of Rav Shlomo Zalman Arbach. Rav Shlomo Zalman Arbach, I'm sure you've all heard, he was the Gadol Adar, he was the Pesach Adar, there's a beautiful picture of him on the wall outside. Um, and he was a, a tzaddik yisod olam, he was as brilliant as he was in Torah, he was even more uh, special in terms of his, his interpersonal relationships. And you know, he famously said by his wife's funeral, when his wife died, he, he gave a very famous hasfid, and he eulogized her, saying that even though the minug is, the custom is that you ask mechila from the niftar, from the niftaret, uh, but I don't have to do that. I don't have to do that. Because we lived over 50 years together, we never offended each other, we never had a fight with each other, we never uh, had words with each other, we followed halacha, and that was it. There was no, you know, there, there, there's no reason for me to ask mechila. Imagine saying that after 50 years of marriage, being able to get up and say that there's no reason for me to ask mechila. That's like, you know, I, I think I would need to ask mechila after five minutes, but like after 50 years is like, you know, an incredible statement. In any event, so this was the level of a tzaddik, and a, here's the Rosh Hashiva of the yeshiva. And there was a need that after every uh, shear, at the end of shear, when shear was over, so it would be time to go to Mincha. So he, he didn't want to, we didn't want that the rabbi should have to go to his office and get his hat and put his shear notes away uh, and then only then go to the Beit Midrash for Mincha. So uh, there was some, a position that was created that my friend had and then I had afterwards that we would go over to him after Shir was over so he would be sitting on, on an elevated stage by a, by a desk and he would give my friend the, uh, his notebook, his Shir notes and he would get his keys from his pocket for the office and for his home and, and then my friend would take it and run to the other side of the building to his office, uh, put the hat on his desk so he could get it for, uh, I'm sorry, he would get his hat and bring it to Mincha and, uh, and open, up the, open up the office with the keys, put the sheer notes in the office, and then come back and give it to him so he could just go straight to the Beit Midrash. That was the job. Very simple job. Uh, no pay, no benefits, except it was a very big covet for us to, to have that job. Anyway, one day... At the end of Shir, my friend goes over to Rav Shlomo Zalman and he said, uh, and, and Rav Shlomo Zalman's putting his hands in his pocket to find his keys, and his keys are not there. And it's not only his office key, it's his house key, and he started getting a little, you know, nervous, like what happened, you know, as we all do when we're missing our keys. So, you know, my friend felt very bad, so he wanted to comfort him. So he says, don't worry, probably the Rashiva left it in his office, I'm going to run to the office, I'll find it, don't worry, calm down, everything's okay. Anyway, he took his notes, he ran to the office, the other side of the building, he like slid on the marble, you know, sliding into the door, opens it up, and he's looking all over for the keys. The keys, 
he thought would be on his desk. It wasn't on his desk in his office. It wasn't on the floor in the office. It wasn't, you know, on, uh, he couldn't find it. it was, he looked under the desk, over the And he was, you know, and then he saw their Flemish Zalman's coat, his overcoat was hanging uh, on a hook on the wall. That's where he kept it. So my friend, you know, innocently enough, he said he probably left it in his coat pocket. So he put his hand in the coat pocket, and sure enough, the keys were there. So he was so happy, my friend. He thought, like, Rav Shlomo Zalman's going to be so grateful when he finds his keys. And he runs back, and Rav Shlomo Zalman's on his way to Mincha through the corridor, and he says, uh, he says in Hebrew, Rebbe, I found your keys. And Rav Shlomo Zalman always had a smile on his face, but now his smile, like the wattage, you know, was a little higher, and he said, oh, wow, thank you so much. He says, tell me, were they on my desk? He says, no, they weren't on your desk. He says, were they uh, on the floor? He says, no, they weren't on the floor. He says, were they on, uh, you know, on the couch? No, they weren't on the couch. So where were they? He says, they were in the Rashiva's coat pocket. So at this point, Rosh Hashanah's face turns beet red, which is very, you know, not normal for him. He was always smiling. He got very serious, and he says, tell me again, where were my keys? my friend is starting to like realize that something is a little bit off because he just told him where his keys are. He says, they were in the rest of his coat. He says, so how do you know where, how do you know where they were? You know, like an x-ray machine. How do you know? He says, well, I put my hand in, in the rest of his coat pocket and I, I took out his keys. So he like couldn't understand this. He was like, explain that to me. You, you took your hand and you put it in my coat pocket did I give you permission to put your to take your hand and to put it into my coat pocket? That's that's my private space. You you don't go into my coat pocket. Now, a lot of people tell me. Let me just finish the story. He said, he says, let me ask you another question. My friend said at this point, if he would have a shovel, he would dug his own grave right then and there because he was so embarrassed. But he said, he said, did you maybe take my wallet also out of my coat pocket when your hand was in there? A lot of times I say over this story, and people said, say it to me afterwards, you know, you shouldn't say that story again, because it's not a Rishlamazaman story. You have to say, you know, nice, sweet, grandfather stories. I feel that this is a very important story, to say, and I tell it over to my Talmudim whenever I can, because especially in now, in, in this day and age, where there's so many ways, and I'll, we'll speak about it soon, um, to encroach and to besiege and to invade other people's privacy, that it's a very important lesson to learn at this stage in your life. What do I mean when I say that there is, it's, in this day and age, it's so easy to violate other people's privacy? I know somebody that I... Uh, I, sometimes I dabble in shidduchim. I'm not very successful. I, I, made a, I made a fair share of shidduchim, but like lately I find it's, it's much harder to make a shidduch. People are just not, I don't know, boys don't want to go out a second time. Girls don't want to go out. It's like, it's, it used to be, I think, much easier. I don't know if that's anyone else's experience, but it's just, and it's frustrating, so it's hard sometimes to continue to have that energy. But anyway, I, I still try. And, um, and one boy I, 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 met, I set up with a girl, and he came back to me and says, he's not interested. I said, well, why did you find out? He says, no, I, I Googled, you know, he, he is like a genius with, like, hacking. 
So he was able to like Google into their private like mortgage accounts, and there he knows how much of a mortgage the people have on their house, how much money they have, how much money they owe. I was like, you don't have the right to do that. Who's who gave you permission to go into somebody else's accounts? I mean, I don't. He didn't do it anything illegally, but it was. But you don't have to do something illegally to to still be invading other people's territory. We do this a lot. I mean, you know, if let's say you want to find out innocently. You know, certain things about certain people where they live, you know, it's so easy. In like one click, you can immediately find out where a person lives and get a picture of their house. You can, you can know exactly how many bedrooms there are, when they did construction. And, you know, and, and there are so many things that, or, or you can find out if they have a criminal record or if they did this wrong or that wrong. And it's not right. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do some degree of research when we're dating. We want to know who the person is that we're, you know, we might be dating but there is there is some like level of like of 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 boundaries that I think we owe other people. A lot of times in the olden days, I know people used to um, you know when you go when you're invited to people's houses, you know people sometimes it's almost like a joke, but like people would go into people's medicine cabinets and see what medications they might be taking or what type of things they're you know that's that's completely wrong. We don't have that ability to go into other people. Whatever we do in life, every step that we take, we have to have permission to take it or else it's wrong. There's a, a fascinating Ramban. The Ramban says that, you know, we know that the me'il of the Kayin Gadol, the, the, the coat that he wore, had bells on the bottom of it. There was bells and then there was pomegranates. And... And why did he have bells? Every it's a strange thing. He says this isn't. The Raman says this isn't normal for royalty, which the Kangalo was. To, do you think uh, I don't know? Prince Charles walks around with a with a with a with a cowbell around his neck, or wherever, every time he takes a step, you have to hear where he is. What is going on? Why does the Kangalo wear bells on the bottom of his coat? And he says that the Kangalo is in the house of Hashem, and. Every step you take, it's almost like you have to ring the doorbell every step. Do I have permission to walk here? Do I have permission to walk here? Obviously, Hashem didn't say yes, 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 but it's the, it's, it's the optics, the understanding that I don't have permission unless, I'm, unless I ask for permission, I can't assume that I have permission. It's not like, of course I have permission unless, until I know otherwise. That's the way a lot of us function. But the truth is, it's the opposite. We have to assume that we don't have permission. I don't have the permission to look through, um, let's say somebody has a loose leaf. Okay, so I don't have permission to go and look at somebody else's loose If you give me permission to look at your loose leaf, I can look at your loose leaf. If I don't have permission, I don't know, maybe you're doodling something, maybe you wrote somebody else a note that, I, that you didn't want me to see. I don't have the right to look into your loose leaf. I don't have the right to look into your, at your phone. You know who messaged you? Who? It's private. It's 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 really private. You don't have the ability to look at other people's texts, at people's WhatsApp, and what people. It's not it's not appropriate. And I'm not talking about your friends. I'm talking about you know family members. I'm talking about you know I've, I I don't look into you know unless I have permission. I don't look in my own wife's pocketbook. It's not my. I don't want to look at what. It's not it's not my place. What am I looking at? You know she might have something in there that's personal. She, that's her space. I don't look into people's drawers. I don't look, you know, now, there's no, you know, the more that you're able to get this type of understanding, I think it's a chidush to a lot of people that that's the way life is, even with good friends. 
You don't look through people's drawers. You don't look through people's knapsacks, through people's loose leaves, through people's pocketbooks. It's not my space. And when people do invade my space, that's really very similar to what we're mourning today. We're mourning over the fact that people went and they took over our, our area. They eventually invaded our space, and then, which led to the Chorban, because that's what leads to Chorban. Chorban is really, it starts with a simple act of surrounding one, another person and then encroaching on another person. And I'm not only talking about physical encroachment into a pocketbook, into a, I'm talking about also, and this is very important, um, bullying people, you know, sometimes people invade my space in a, in a, in a, in a, in a way that's, that, that's hurtful. You know, somebody tells me something that's insulting or that, you know, that it's, it, it, or, or to bully me or to say, that's, that's something that's, again, that's also an invasion of my space. You have to be very careful with other people. It could be a very close friend. But a lot of times we assume, oh, she's a friend of mine, she'll get it, she understands. Every single person has feelings, every person has a heart, has sensitivities, and we have to be extremely vigilant to be protective of the other people's, uh, uh, pe- people around us and that they have the right to this privacy, to this freedom of uh, of, of space. And this is, a, you know, a very important lesson. I feel if you, if, if we all learn this lesson, you know, at an early stage in life, it becomes part of us and it becomes almost, you know, understood that this is the reality. If you, we wait and we don't learn this lesson, so then it leads to a lot of problems. I think a lot of problems in our lives happen because we, we tend to uh, encroach on other people. We tend to, like, step over a boundary. There's, there's halacha about, about hasagas gevol. Hasagat gevol means that you're not supposed to move a property line. Or in commerce, there's a, a lot of halachot about if, let's say, I have a, I don't know, I have a store, I'm selling a pizza. So you shouldn't be opening up a competing pizza store right next door to me. You know, because that's like you're 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 invading my territory. So these halachot are very very like the more you you have antennas up to see like how how makpid the Torah is to for for our privacy and for the right that we each have to exist, the more you see like a pattern of how important it is in our own personal life to give other people room. Every person needs room. We need breathing room. We need, our, we need privacy. We need, we need to be trusted. And uh, this is something that uh, I know in yeshiva, I, you know, in my yeshiva I have about uh, 200, 250 students currently and, you know, over the past, over thousands, thousands of students over the past, uh, you know, two decades and, um, and, and they know about me, that I don't pry, I don't, I don't go into their property, I don't, I don't, meaning some, in a lot of yeshivot they have like mashkichim that go and they look into guys' rooms and what are they looking at, what do they have, what do they don't have, what they, you know, are they getting up in the morning and wake them, I, I don't go into anyone's space, I like, I, I stay in the Beit Medrash, I speak to guys in the Beit Medrash, I don't, it's, that's your space. You're, you're, you're in the dorm. I don't go into a dorm. I, I don't think I've been to a, a guy's dorm room unless there's a, a, you know, a, a, an important emergency or something. But I don't go in there. It's, like not, my, it's not my place. They, that's their place. I have my place. They have their place. And, and in life, you have to figure out right away like, what space is mine and what space is not mine. 
And sometimes you're in the same room together. Sometimes you have a, a roommate or a sibling, and you're in the same room. It doesn't give you permission, either, even then, to like look at their stuff and to go into their stuff. And it's natural. It's, the, the desire and the, you know, is, is very natural. We all, we're curious and we want to know. And the, but it's also, like we have to stop, our, we have to physically stop ourselves sometimes before we go and take that move and look into somebody else's you know, private area. That's theirs. And just like we don't want our own space to be in any way violated, it's very important for us to know about uh, other people that they don't want their space to be violated either. And um, anyway, this is, I think, uh, an important takeaway from this particular Tainit, Tainit, film. Uh, I'd like to once again thank the Menahelet for, uh, for inviting me, and I want to wish all of you Continued Hatzlacha. I heard that this is a very strong, strong year here in the seminary, and you should. Uh, I could see it's not so. Uh, I don't need to hear it. You could see it on everybody's faces that uh, such a, a wonderful, serious group of of Benot Torah. And um, want to wish you my my simple bracha that you should all uh, have a lot of happiness in life. And you should have success, and you should uh, continue to go in the in the ways of that you're a wonderful marot and. Ravayim are, are guiding you in, and Mitzvah uh, Hashem, on this day when we are, we, when we are mourning uh, one of the steps of the Churban Beit HaMikdash, we have to hope and pray that it's going to be uh, a, uh, a good day to daven, that the Beit HaMikdash will rebuilt, be rebuilt, the third Beit HaMikdash, from here, Amen, Amen, Amen.